Welcome to the Quilting Arts Podcast, where we take a deep dive into the world of contemporary art quilting. I'm Susan Brubaker Knapp. And I'm your co-host, Vivica Hansen-Denegri. We're excited to be together today to talk about one of our favorite topics, and that's color. Yay. Yeah, who doesn't love color? Yeah, I think quilters especially are really intoxicated with color. Yeah, you know, I've I've been um, in this industry for a little, I don't know, around eight or nine years now. And all I can think is when I think about color and quilting, I think about those rich, saturated colors. I think especially art quilters love that rich, saturated um, jewel tones in, in many cases. Yeah. There's some colors that I never use. I mean, like, I don't think I have made a single brown art quilt. And I'm not surprised about that because your color, when I think of Susan, every time I see that rich, deep sapphire blue, that's when I think of you. Ah. Bright, bright blue. I love pure colors too. When I think of, I see a lot a lot of quilters who use more of what I think of as muddy colors. And I've noticed that almost all the colors that I use are cl- what I think of as clean colors. And I don't, I don't know whether that's attached, that preference is attached to your personality or um, to the way you see color. I've always thought that probably different people see colors differently. I've always wondered about that because, you know, of course, if you're colorblind, then you don't see red and green. You have a real hard time differentiating between red and green, which would be really hard at a stoplight. But I don't know. Do you think maybe it has something to do with how you're brought up, the kind of colors that were in your household? I don't know. I'm sure there's lots of different things that influence, but I think a lot of it comes down to psychology, probably. It could. It could. Now, we're of the same age, basically almost identical mm-hmm. in age. And so we were born in the early 60s. And when I think about like my parents' home, my parents were Scandinavian. And so everything, all mm. the furniture was Scandinavian. The books were Scandinavian, all of this stuff. So my parents had this enormous piece of framed fabric over their bed, over their water bed. Let's say it was the 60s, <laughs> but it was a piece of Marimekko fabric. And yeah. so I have always been really fascinated with the Marimekko design style, as well as the colors that they use. And have to say, I have uh, a number of pieces of their fabric that I love. But so for me, it's red. I love those hot, hot reds Hmm. and, you know, the stark contrast. I really think they're beautiful. But then I look at some of the art quilts that I make and I have made quilts in the Brown family, but they're, they're when I'm really expressing deep, dark emotions. They're not when I'm, you know, Hmm. doing something about joy. Yeah. Now I've made traditional quilts with Browns in them. Hard not to. Yeah. But I, you know, it's because I make a lot of traditional quilts and I still do. In fact, I'm, I'm, in the process of finishing a high school graduation quilt from the youngest niece that is all blues and greens and purples, which is what her preference was. But I have made some bed quilts that are browns and blacks and and that kind of thing. It's not that I don't like them. It's just that when I go to make art quilts, I always end up with the brighter colors. But sometimes a quilt needs a different color than is in your normal palette. Like I think about the Mm -hmm. palette of what we wear is sometimes very different than what we we make. And um, so the way that my little podcast studio is set up here, I actually had to make a like little cave with blankets so I can help with the sound. And so what I'm looking into is actually my fabric storage cabinet. And okay, so I have to say there is some (laughs) there is some dark muddy fabric way up at the top because I don't reach up there very frequently. Um, Some of it is really, really gorgeous hand dyed or 
commercial fabric that's made to look hand dyed, like some Marsha Dursey fabric. And I have some beautiful hand printed fabric from India that has the browns, but most of my colors are the reds, hot, pink, orange, and I have to say some beautiful blues. I have a funny story to tell about the color red. Um, years ago, and this is at our old house, I painted, repainted, we moved our daughter out of the bedroom, where her, which was her nursery, which was pale yellow, and I repainted it, and it was a partially my studio and partially the guest bedroom. And I painted it red with, there's lots of trim. It had wainscoting and um, chair rail and everything. And I painted above that bright red and it was our guest room. And I noticed that pretty quickly after that, my parents decided that they were going to stay in a hotel instead of staying in my guest room. And so I asked my mother, you know, what is it? Is it just that the kids are at a certain age and, you know, it's a little bit too much to be in the house with them all the time? And she said, Susan, sleeping in that room is like sleeping in hell. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> and I it, I was just dumbfounded because to me, it was bright and cheerful and happy and energy, right? And to her, it just made her feel hot and miserable. So two totally different perceptions of what that color is. And to her, red was just totally inappropriate for a bedroom. Well, that's so interesting. And when I say awesome, what I'm thinking is it's incredible how something can just give a different perception to a different person. You know, mm -hmm. like your mom might have had a bad experience with red. Right. And the associations that we have with colors can be very strong. Right. And those emotional, me those memories linked to emotions and um, they come back when you look at certain colors. Absolutely, they do. There's some colors that just put me in my happy place and some that make me feel despair. Well, fuchsia always makes me feel happy, I have to say. <laughs> and, um, you know, anything with that, that beautiful depth of that purpley pink just just makes my heart sing. Okay, so I have a fuchsia story too. Oh, you've got color stories, yeah. I do. And it's funny because I really started when we knew we were going to do this as our topic, I started thinking about the times in my life that color became an issue. So here's another story. I had just started my very first job with Chase Manhattan Bank. I moved to New York City, which terrified my mother. And um, I bought my first clothes. And when I was a child, my mother would never let me wear black. And I love wearing black. I was born on Halloween and I embrace that dark side and I want it and I look awesome in black with my coloring. I was never allowed to wear it. Like I wanted a black velvet dress at Christmas, right? So anyway, I went out and bought a lot of black stuff. And then I also bought some very brights. I bought this gorgeous fuchsia wool blazer. It was very traditionally tailored. And I wore it, of course, it was the, it was the mid eighties. I wore it with a white blouse with the little bow tie kind of say, thing. You had to have the bow. And, right. And the black skirt and the pantyhose and the black heels with the appropriate height heels. And I went into work and I was working in the corporate communications department. And very quickly, I was pulled aside by my boss and told that wearing that color was inappropriate. And I'm, I'm sure my mouth hung open. And I said, what's wrong with it? And he said, well, people are talking about you and about that fuchsia jacket. And I was so stunned. Isn't that interesting? Did you stop wearing it? You must have. You were young. I did not stop wearing it. I did not. I was outraged. You're a rebel. <laughs> I, I told him, I said, I'm really sorry that people feel that way, but it's not like I'm wearing anything that's inappropriate for any other reason than the color. And it was just a sign to me that, you know, 
I was a young woman in a traditionally male, middle-aged workplace, and they were upset because I was rocking the boat by wearing pink. Well, Susan, I always knew you were a rebel, but <laughs> that is that is amazing because I don't know if I would have been that strong when I was in my early 20s. If I would have been as strong and as forceful, I think now if someone pulled me aside and said a color was inappropriate, I don't think it would ever happen. Yeah, I'd spent a good chunk of my first paycheck on that wool jacket. And I wasn't going to stop wearing it. And plus, I looked really awesome in it. It's a great color on me. So It's nice when you know. <laughs> well, before we transition to uh, introduce our guest, I, I did want to say that my mom wouldn't let me wear black either. And I have a feeling that they were probably, you know, exactly the same generation, just like you and I mm-hmm. are. And so I was, I was a bit of a rebel when I was in high school. I went away my junior year and was an exchange student, and I was in Australia. And so it was super hot in the summer, just super hot. And for my birthday, I found a black bathing suit and it was a one piece and it wasn't totally revealing or anything, but that was the time when you could put things on layaway. So I put that black bathing suit on layaway. It must've been in August, knowing that it was Mm going to get warmer for summer. And uh, so I put it on layaway and I mailed a letter to my mother and I said, I just want you to know I am buying a black bathing suit (laughs) and I promise I will not actually buy it until my birthday. And But I am going to be wearing a black bathing suit. Just want you to know. Fair warning, mom. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, I'm sure that our artist in residence is going to have lots of stories about color and about the influence of color in our lives. And I'm just so excited to bring in industry professional Luana Rubin, who's very, very vast experience with the very basic material of art, which is pure color, is going to really inform our conversation. So we're going to take a very quick break and bring in Luana Rubin. We're so lucky to have Luana Rubin join us as our artist in residence today. When Susan and I were planning the topic of color to be the focus of our conversation, we couldn't have chosen a better person to join our discussion. Luana is the co-owner and president of one of the most widely known online fabric retailers, eQuilter.com in Boulder, Colorado. She has vast experience in the field of color, having worked as a designer in the quilt and textile and garment industry since 1980. And in addition, those who know Luana know that she loves to travel the world and share her photography. Her work with textiles, love of travel, and unique perspective of the industry has positioned her as an expert in color and design. Luana is also a chairholder in the Color Marketing Group, which is an international color forecasting association. Welcome, Luana. We're so glad to have you here. Oh, thank you. It's so great to be with you. Well, the first thing I wanted to ask you about is... What do you think it is about color that attracts art quilters so much? And why should we learn about color? I think that creative people have a very visceral and intuitive response to color. I'm sure that you know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. When we see a color that really vibrates with who we are or even how we're feeling that day, it just kind of grabs us. And then there are other colors that repel us. And sometimes that's about us personally. Sometimes it's about what we're feeling. Sometimes it's something that's been in the news that attracts or repels us to a color. I think all of us have kind of a baseline of colors that we are, we feel we've been attracted to our whole life, for instance, and that can come out in our work. But often, you know, artists will challenge themselves by working with colors that they hate, which is, I think, really interesting. That would be a hard challenge. It would. Yeah. 
you know, it's one thing if you're using, like Susan was saying, she never used brown. If you had to use brown for a shadow, but if I had to use brown for the focal point of a quilt, I think that would be really challenging. Yeah. Well, it can be a foil for a, a bright color, you know, to make a bright color pop or a lighter color. You want to put a darker or more neutral color next to it. And of course, artists uh, are aware of that, but often they do it intuitively. We don't always have to read it in a book. We just audition colors in our work and we see how they vibrate or how they blend into each other. I've had really interesting experiences walking into quilt shops and ending up helping people pick colors because it always just amazes me that some people can't put colors together for a quilt, whereas to me it comes so easily. And I've always wondered why that is, what it is, because, you know, it just seems like second nature to me. I think as teachers, we can give people permission to have color confidence. I know what you're talking about. And I think that's why our industry over the last 20 years has moved away from very, you know, brown or dirty or dark colors to more clear and saturated colors. But, you know, some of that confidence that people get when working with a, like a line of fabrics is not something that they've really gotten on their own. Because if you just use fabrics from a certain line, you know, all of them are coordinated on purpose to either be coordinating colors or coordinating textures. And, you know, one thing that I've really enjoyed about art quilting is that most art quilters don't do that. They don't take a stack of 20 coordinating fabrics from a single line and make a quilt unless, you know, they're doing a baby quilt or something that is supposed to all be coordinated like that. But, um, you know, so many art quilters talk about the intuition that they have about color. And you've already mentioned that. That's just so important. Absolutely. That has a lot to do with how I run my business. And I've told you, I mentioned before about how we started our business, that I visited over 40 quilt shops around the country when I was I had left the garment industry. I discovered quilting. I was really excited that maybe this was going to be a new career track for me. I started visiting quilt shops, and I realized that the colors I was looking for were not there. I would find a couple things in each shop. I finally realized that nobody was carrying that kind of color. You know, they were buying collections, as you mentioned. And so the idea for our business was to carry those big, bold prints and bright colors but to carry fabrics that would stand on their own, that would speak to you individually as opposed to relying on a whole collection. So, for instance, I look at about 150,000 different products per year and buy about 14,000. So I cherry pick and I cherry pick for the art quilter or the contemporary quilter because I know that they have an eye for color and they're not afraid of color. They have more of that confidence to see something that stands out and to say, yes, I don't know what I'm going to do with that yet, but I need that. <laughs> when you went out and looked at those 40 shops, what year was that? Do you remember or around what time that was? Because it seems like there are time frames when colors go through stages when, you know, when we had all of those browns and muddy, muddy browns and beiges and blacks. Reproductions. Yeah, yeah. Well, I s discovered the quilting world in the early 90s. I really got into it in the mid-90s. And by 98, I was really narrowing in on starting this business. So I would say late 90s okay. because we started in uh, March of 99. And now so you go into a lot of quilt shops and it's all brights now. That's true. I think it's great. Yeah, I do too. But sometimes if you do need to find some neutrals, it can be harder too. And it's so much of a preference because there are still people that are working in 
what I think of as very traditional old fashioned kind of colors. Um, and, and I make old fashioned quilts too. I make applique quilts with, you know, I do have, I do have Browns in my stash for certain things. That reminds me of something that happened when we first started our business in the basement of my house (laughs) 21 years ago. We had people coming over and looking at all the bright, colorful fabrics and getting really excited. Wow, this is what I've been looking for. And then I had a friend uh, who was, you know, very well known in the quilting uh, community locally. And she came in, took a look around and said, there's really nothing here for me, which I, I was shocked I said, well, what are you looking for? She said, well, I really need more grays and browns and beiges. (laughs) And so that was like a big wake-up call for me that I had, you know, in serving that niche, I had completely missed. There are still people who need these colors. And for myself, I recognize that those colors are very important to set off those bright colors, to showcase them. So as a business owner, you must really not have to just buy what you like but you must have to also think about the entire world that is coming to your website and choosing fabrics. You know, that's a challenge in itself right there. Well, I have identified a demographic, a customer, so I'm not trying to be everything to everybody, but for that customer, yes, that's true. But it's a great challenge. (laughs) Yes. So do you see a certain color sort of bubbling to the top in the mid-2020 Pandemic time? Yes. Well, I think that the Pantone color of the year, that deep sapphire blue, was very prophetic. We'll probably talk about the color marketing group and and how they approach color. Most people don't realize that the color of the year is based on uh, Pantone surveying manufacturers and retailers about what is on the water and shipping and coming into the stores in the next six months. So it's not so much... Um, an intuitive prediction. It's more uh, fact-based, you know, on the consumer level. Tell us a little bit about Pantone and their color of the year, because I don't think, I I worked a little bit as a graphic designer, so I'm very familiar with the Pantone color charts, but a lot of people don't have any idea what that is. Well, color is very scientific when you work as a designer. There are many different color systems. Pantone, I would say, is the most well-known to the consumer, because of the color of the year, right? Uh, The woman who chooses and announces the color of the year, her name is Lee Eisman. Uh, She's written many books about color. Her her full name is Leatrice Eisman. And she travels, well, she did (laughs) travel all over the world to Paris and Milan and, you know, New York, et cetera, uh, speaking to designers and manufacturers about color. And when you're in the garment industry, you have to work way ahead on color. So you have, and especially when I started out in the 80s, it doesn't take so long to develop products now, but back then you would have to predict color and design one to two years in advance. And so you would be working on color two years in advance easily. Wow. So now it's, it's much closer because, well, with so many things that are digital, um, digital laser cutting of garments in the factories and so on. When I lived in Hong Kong and worked in the, I was working in the building where the Oscar de Laurenta silk dresses were being cut and uh, they would lay out the silk and a guy with a big feather would smooth it out. And then they, you know, they'd lay out 20 layers and they'd cut it out by hand. And of course now it's all done automatically. So a lot of things have changed, but now we think about color more as groups of color, not as a single color. And also for the industry 
and the country and the region. I mean, there are a lot of layers to it. So, you know, people say to me, what's the color of the year? What's the next color of the year? The color of the year from Pantone is more for the consumer, but for artists and for designers and professionals, we have to think way far ahead. We have to think, as I said, about the industry, the region, you know, even within the United States, there are different color pockets. New York will buy different colors than Florida, than the Southeast, for instance. And so uh, that's always existed in the garment industry, but for textiles, that's also true. So quilt shops in Florida, this is obvious, would buy something different than a quilt shop in Maine. That's quite obvious, and, and you'll hear that from the sales reps. Um, when I buy something that's coastal, lighthouses and beach, they say, you're the only, uh, the only shop, we're really not a shop, we're more of a warehouse you know, mail order, but you're the only shop in Colorado who buys this stuff, <laughs> right? But that's because we can ship all over. And so the colors, yeah, we need to carry a, a very broad range of colors so that people can respond to that color intuitively when they look at it, in our case, on the color screen, or when we put something in a piece of artwork. You know, when you see a piece of artwork in a gallery or in Houston at an exhibit at QuiltCon, you see it from across the room and you're like, wow, what is that? I have to go look at it. You, everybody's had that experience. Mm -hmm. And you're drawn to it and you look at the colors and you try to figure out what is it about this piece that is that is drawing me into it? And then if you're an artist, you start to think about, wow, I'd like to do something like that, but I'd like to take it another step further. And that's how artists inspire each other. All right, let's just take a quick break and we'll be right back. So can you tell us a little bit about the color marketing group that you're part of too? Because I have a feeling that that really ties into all of this color of the year and, you know, the design colors that we're seeing, whether it's a car, a piece of fabric, or a room, like in a magazine. Exactly. Well, the color marketing group is an international color trend forecasting group, and it really is international. There are four different conferences around the world in North America, Europe, Latin America, and Asian Pacific, which includes Australia and all of Asia. And then we have an annual final conference where we bring palettes that have been developed through collaboration. It used to be that we did it in person, now we're doing it over Zoom. We bring those palettes together into a final world palette. And there are designers and manufacturers, but there are also people who are part of this group who work for huge corporations. When I say huge, I mean the, the, the biggest corporations you can imagine who are developing uh, pigments and special metallic finishes for all kinds of products from automobiles to the carpet that goes into a hotel um, to electronics, you know, the cover for your smartphone, etc. And we come together and we share our ideas and our thoughts about what the future will bring. We all come with a group of colors and we put them up on the board, either in person or digitally, and we collaborate and boil those colors down to a palette. So I have participated this year in two of those, uh, the North American, one of the North American conferences called a Chromosome, and the Asian Pacific, which is Australia and several countries, well, all the countries in Asia. What goes into that decision? Are you talking about what you think is happening in the world that's going to affect color? Are you talking about psychology? Are you talking, I mean, it just, it seems like magic to me. Like, like that color 
gets, and I've heard people kind of joking about the Pantone color of the year, right? I'm sure you have too. Like, like it seems like someone just picks a color and says, this is it. This is, this is, this is, everyone's going to love this color next year. That's not what you're talking about. Right. You know, in a way it is magic, but mm-hmm. it has to do with pop culture. It has to mm-hmm. do with the economy. And obviously we have some huge influences that are going to influence us not only two years from now, which is what we were trying to predict, but, you know, probably for the next five or even 10 years. I mm-hmm. think every everything is going to change how we do business, how we interact. So, yeah, it's it's quite a challenge when you come to the beginning of one of these conferences. We kind of we looked at each other and oh, over Zoom, of course, <laughs> and said, "Wow, how are we going to predict, you know, what will happen?" I mean, there's so many unknowns, but we put our heads down, we put our colors together, we find that many of us already picked out the same colors. Hmm. We start to boil down the palette and we, and then we also come up with stories and we find that the colors just naturally flow into usually three different stories, trend stories about what's happening in our world, where we think those stories are going to be evolving into two years from now. And, uh, I, you know, I have a friend from NASA who was a speaker, a futurist speaker, 10 years ago in Montreal at one of these color marketing group meetings. And he likes to call us the color mafia, that when we choose <laughs> colors, that's what it's going to be. <laughs> it's really, and actually, the truth is those colors would happen whether we predicted them or not. It's, it's a natural flow. And, you know, a lot of people are drawn to doing trend forecasting. I, I have a friend whose son, actually my nephew too, young people are very interested in trend forecasting these days. It's almost like I could say that itself is a trend. And there are people who are, have the ability to see where things are going or to recognize something that is the next big thing, right? That, that's a concept mm-hmm. I think most people are familiar with. And so the same thing exists with color, the next big thing. You know, what's the color that kind of rocks our boat and makes us kind of snap out of it and look at it and say, wow, that's really different. 20 years ago, I would have hated that color, but now it looks fresh. It looks you know, maybe if we tweak it, we make it a little clearer, a little brighter, a little warmer, cooler. That's the color that really rings my bell right now. And so artists and, well, I really think fiber artists tend to be on the cutting edge of these kind of trends. They tend to be drawn to things that are fresh and new. And you start seeing that coming out in fiber art or textile art. And then it gets picked up by the couture designers and you start seeing it in Paris and New York, et cetera. And we've seen that uh, with ombre, you know, the ombre trend started out with textile artists, hand dyeing fabric, and then it moved into fashion and the home deck. And now it's everywhere, right? And it's now it's like a basic. You know, it's funny you should say that because last year, right about, uh, must have been September, I put out the call for submissions for QuiltCon magazine. And that goes out to Modern Quilt Guild members, basically, because in order to be in the magazine, you do have to be a member of the guild. And you would not believe how many ombre quilts we received not only ombre, but the other trend that was just starting to really get near the apex was the curved piecing. I could have just had a magazine full of curved pieces, mostly Drunkard's Path, used in absolutely unique ways, and ombre, either ombre fabrics or an ombre placement. 
and color transparency, because I'm also seeing a lot of color transparency, not only in the modern quilt um, movement right now, but also in, in art quilts, we're seeing a lot more transparency. So is that something that you're also seeing as far as trending for the future? Or are we sort of reaching the apex of that and now going toward a different kind of trend? I think that it's coming to a new level of acceptance. I think that more people are realizing that when they work with ombre, when they cut up ombres and use them in their quilt, it gives like a three-dimensional shimmering, glowing quality. And, you know, I would say three to five years ago, I was desperate to find ombre fabrics that I could buy for my business. And now I have 150 and they sell like crazy. And I go, you know, particularly to QuiltCon, I've noticed uh, the modern quilters are starting to put these into their quilts and bringing, instead of that flat, solid look, it's more of that luminous three-dimensional look. And I like to stand around quilts that I think are special and listen to what people say as they walk up. And you hear a lot of people saying, oh, what is that? How did they do that? How did they get that effect? And that's what the ombre fabrics do. And of course, if you cut up an ombre strip, then you automatically have a, a gradient of several different values, which is useful too. Well, I have a question. As part of the Color Marketing Group, what can you tell us? Are you sworn to secrecy? Uh, can you at least share what trends you're seeing happening that might influence what that Pantone color of the year is going to be next year? What's in store for us in your crystal ball? In my crystal ball. Well, this year, I, I was mentioning that I think that they were amazingly predictive in that dark blue because it's a, it's a color of stability hmm. and of trust. And so what will we need next year? We need comfort, right? I mean, it's been an extremely traumatic year. And, you know, I see a lot of people who are dealing with mental health issues. Not everybody recognizes that that's what it is. But, you know, stress, depression, grief. So I would hope that it would be a color that is brighter. Right now, uh, I find myself very drawn to yellow greens, which are a color of life and hope. I was going to say green would be my bet based on what you said. And, you know, that purple pink, that kind of orchid pink mm -hmm. as an accent color with that green, I think is really important. I think we're still going to be dealing with shades of gray. I notice that there's a lot of uh, dark charcoal and I, you know, I look at trends. We sell so many different colors that when I see a particular color that's bubbling up, I go, oh, that's a trend. We got to watch that. So I would say, you know, dark neutral grays, charcoal grays as a foil for some of those bright colors are, are very important. So we've gone through kind of a mid-tone retro trend, right? All of those modern retro mid-tones and now I think we're going into more juicy, natural colors because we're missing nature, right? What we crave is to go out into the forest. You know, I can't say, it, you know, it may be that they feel that people are going to be cocooning for the next year. And that's some more, uh, who knows, that gray could be a color. But I would say depending on which industry and which region or which country, that will affect that industry or that region's color of the year. But I vote for a very lively sprouting or fern uh, yellow green would be my my personal vote. <laughs> well, maybe Vivica and I should take, uh, should bet on it, should pick a Pantone okay. color and put our bets down and we could have a small wager 
And then we'll check back in. Well, when is the next Pantone Color of the Year released? Is it like in December? Yes, exactly. Okay. And then the Pantone Color of the Year before was kind of like a, you know, in a way it's it's a kind of a gimmick to get people to talk about color because it's not, they're not predicting two years from now, like the color marketing group does. They're saying, folks, this is a color you're going to see in the next six months. Get ready, watch for it. I normally am am way ahead of whatever color is coming out to the consumers because I I see that the artists, the intuitive creative people are already moving on to the next thing. So we'll see. I'll send you a swatch and we can have a three-way bet. (laughs) Sounds good. Although you're a little bit more in the know than we are. So (laughs) if you do it, fast, I can actually get this all on the show notes. And so we'll have our predictions. We'll have Sounds our predictions because I think that would be a lot of fun. That would be fun. Yeah, definitely. And you know, it's going to be even harder, I think, for quilt shops and for people like designers who are a little bit ahead of of what's actually coming out in magazines and coming out in stores, et cetera, because we're not going to have quilt market this year. Right. And I think that's a it's a hard thing for the creative types who need to get together and feed off one another, but it's also hard for a shop to see everything in one room and really think about their customers and what to what to feed their customers as well. Well, I think it's important to talk about color trends for neutral colors as well. And I mentioned that charcoal gray but also warm browns. So red browns and yellow browns are also important. And they really make uh, cool complementary colors pop. So if you think of a brown as more in the yellow or the orange range, but it's just been darkened, right? Mm -hmm. Then you think about the complementary color that will pop when it's next to that color. So playing around with you know, neutrals or, or like you said, dark browns with some of these opposing colors and perhaps some analogous colors. So I like colors like uh, maple brown or a cinnamon brown with that deep plum berry, maybe a, a blueberry iris, and then that kind of hot green. Maybe in the past we would have used a bright yellow as an accent or complement, but now that that yellow green that really pops would be a great accent color for a color palette like that. You know what? I love listening to you and hearing those words because I always tell people in when I teach a little bit of color theory in some of my painting classes, painting on fabric, is to learn to use really descriptive words. And maybe that's the English major in me too. But if you you don't just talk about green, you talk about lime and emerald and chartreuse and poison green, right? And you just did that, a perfect example of all those beautiful words that are so precise and so eloquently describe a specific tone or shade or tint of color. So it's funny that you'd say that, Susan, though, because she was talking and I was getting hungry because all of the words, cinnamon, blueberry. (laughs) Maple. (laughs) Maple, exactly. Mm -hmm. These are all, obviously, uh, being in New England, these are all words that we use all the time in the kitchen. But um, yeah, very, very fun. And when I say those words, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And I'll tell you one more fun thing about the Color Marketing Group. One of the things that we do is make up names for colors. Oh, fun. Yeah. And, you know, so I remember a few years ago, there was a really great kind of honey gold. And there's a long list of like 20,000 color names that have been used over the years by the color marketing groups. You always have to come up with a new name and we have to check the list. Wow. So the, the name that came up for that color was Honey Moon. It was perfect. So anyway, that's another fun part of it is being a wordsmith, 
you know, being inspired by color and then coming up with a name for it. Well, I'm interested too in through the years or the the centuries, how color has changed in quilts and how you can, you know, you can identify quilts from the mid 1800s because of that shedder orange, right? And then we've got all the double pinks in the mid 1800s. And then there are colors like indigo and Prussian blue, turkey red, matter red, that are archetypal of a certain era of quilts. And it seems like now, and a lot of that was dependent on things changing with the technology evolving, with certain dyes becoming available, with them figuring out how to create stable dyes that wouldn't change color over time. But now it's totally different, right? With digital printing and everything else, we can achieve colors that maybe they couldn't get before, right? There's a really cool book about that, by the way. It's called The Secret Lives of Color by Cassia St. Clair. And it's fascinating. It talks about the history of color and and the history of how dyes were made and how they actually, you know, killed people or people killed for them. It, very, very mm. interesting. I'll put a link to that on our show notes as well. That's good. Yeah, I have a collection of books about the history of color and pigments, and it's really quite fascinating. I, I don't know if you guys know Alden O'Brien. She's the curator of the DAR Museum, the Textile and Quilt and Costume Department. She is an expert at this. She can look at a quilt and tell you exactly when it was made mm. based on the color in the prints. I can't do that. That's not my specialty. But if I need to know something like that, I check in with her. Barbara Brackman as well is, is a, a real expert on that. She's written several books about dating and dating fabrics, etc., but I always wonder whether were those fabrics available first because people figured out how to create those dye colors and then they became popular or did they become widely produced because they were in demand? Which comes first, the chicken or the egg? I hate to say this, but I think it's both. I think the manufacturers would develop a new dye. They would recognize that it was going to be popular because it was new, usually because it was bright or it was different. They would go ahead and produce the goods, and as soon as it got out there, it would get snapped up like crazy and mm -hmm. put into garments and quilts and so on uh, because it was new and different, just like we do today, right. right? Just like digital prints. Digital prints look so different to us when they first came out. They still look very different and exciting to me because you have no limitation on the number of colors that can be in a yard of fabric, and that's very exciting to me. So I think it's the same thing. You know, yeah. when we something something shiny and new in fabric, we have to have it, right? <laughs> I remember a, a, a year or two ago, I saw for the first time a car that was that, I don't know, even know what it's called. Maybe you do that kind of opalescent. They're like opalescent colors where they shift, the colors are shifting depending on the light conditions. And I almost wrecked my car because I was so excited looking at that color. And I was like, how did they do that? And how, I mean, that's a good example of me being like, I want that right now. If I could get a car that looked like that, because it was just so cool to me. And, you know, you don't think of color as being a color as being new. It seems like all the colors are out there, right? But somehow there's different effects now that we can get. That is really an important part of the color marketing group. And the, the people, they're kind of geeks who develop these finishes are part of that group. Uh, so, for instance, these these very large corporations who have, you know, whole uh, departments, that's all they do is mix up these wild uh, finishes. And uh, as you say, uh, color shift. 
Um, in fact, after the last chromosome that I just participated in, I got a little box in the mail and it had about 10 plastic samples of these different kinds of finishes. And you pull those out. I can't do anything with them, but they're fun to look at. You might have to get into like making mosaics or something instead of... <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, with fabric, we have that too, because there's the, um, you know, even it depends on the substrate sometimes. Like if you're dyeing your own fabric and you use a um, modeled fabric to dye, mm -hmm. or if you use something that's not pure white, or if your substrate is um, more shiny. Silk. Silk, etc. We can definitely have that in fabric too. It'd be interesting to see what quilting, um, what art quilting will be affected by that kind of a substrate. And of course, there are pearlescent finishes. So a long time ago, we just had gold metallic and silver metallic. Then we had uh, copper metallic, we had some holographic foil overprinting, and then there was a whole range of pearlescent uh, overprinting. It's kind of like pigment printing, right? So mm -hmm. it's, it sits on top of the fabric as opposed to a dye that bonds with the molecule of the cotton. So there are many interesting fabrics out there that if, uh, you know, I, I like to put together pre-cuts or fat quarters of those so people can play with all those different effects. Do they have any effect on how long the fabric will be useful? You know, because I actually just made a garment last weekend and I was using a fabric that had a silver metallic on it. It was, it was a, probably a five or six year old um, cotton and steel print. And I was afraid to iron on the front because I was afraid of what is going to happen to this shiny silver mm. if I press it too hot. Not to mention washing and drying it every time you wear it. I'm going to wear it once, Susan. One time. <laughs> well, you know, 20 years ago, those metallic finishes really would wash out. Uh, there's kind of an ongoing urban myth. And I, I think, unfortunately, um, there are quilt shop owners, who's older ones, who still think that is the case. But actually, uh, the technology in pearlescent and metallic finishes has come a long way. You know, if you're concerned about that, I still would put a soft cloth over it just to protect it or not use a super hot iron or iron it inside out. If you're really concerned about that, personally, I don't care. I mean, how much time do you have in your life to deal with things like that? Zero. Okay, so there you go. <laughs> you know, maybe it would last uh, 30 or 40 washes instead of 20 uh, and still have that same brilliance and that still iridescent quality if you did that question is more with the user. Thank you so much for joining us, Luana. This has been a fascinating talk. And I know that our listeners are going to agree that learning more about color, where it comes from, and how we use it in the art quilting industry is just really going to be helpful. Oh, that's great. It's always a pleasure to spend time with you. Thanks, Luana. Well, I love talking to Luana Rubin. She's always so eloquent, so knowledgeable, and really, you know, a visionary. Absolutely. And, you know, it was so funny. At the end of the conversation, I was thinking about what she does with a color marketing group. And my mind immediately went back to one of my favorite secret pleasure movies, which is The Devil Wears Prada. And there's a scene in this movie, and I'm going to have to put the link on show notes, but it's where um, the Anna Winter character, who is played by Meryl Streep, just talks about the, um, the main character's blue sweater. And what she's talking about is you think that you 
just went to your closet and chose a blue sweater. Well, this blue sweater has been chosen for you. And she Mm -hmm. talked exactly about the cerulean blue color and how it was developed, which designers had used it in their clothing, and how it actually made its way into the closet of this character in such a funny way and absolutely cutting and biting humor. It was it was perfect, but it reminded me so much of what Luana has done with this group. Well, I've got a great quote about color. Um, we love to end the show with a quote. This one is by Vasily Kandinsky, who is a Russian painter, and he was an art theorist, and he's considered a pioneer of abstract art. He lived 1866 to 1944. He said, color directly influences the soul. Color is the keyboard, the eyes are the hammers, the soul is the piano with many strings. The artist is the hand that plays, touching one key or another purposefully to cause vibrations in the soul. So as people who enjoy music would would actually tell you right now is that how you describe it is often by color. And my, like my piano teacher used to say, you have to add more color here. You have to add volume or you have to pull back or you have to be sharper or quicker or something like that. What a beautiful way to describe what we see. My daughter, who's a musician, always, when she was little, would talk about, oh, this is green music. She would see the colors as the music was playing. Interesting. Interesting. Thanks for listening. And remember, there's lots more information about the things that we discussed in this episode, including photos and resources of the content that we discussed in the show, color palettes, books, videos, and more. You'll find the information on our show notes page. Just follow the link in the description on our website, quiltingdaily.com. If you want to hear episodes as soon as they come out, please subscribe. Just search Quilting Arts Podcast on whatever app you use, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. And when you do, please leave a rating and review. We'd love to hear from you. The Quilting Arts Podcast is a production of Golden Peak Media. It's hosted by me, Vivica Hansen-Denegri, and Susan Brubaker-Knapp. This episode was recorded and edited by Chad Franzen. Sarah Erickson is our web producer, and our executive producer of podcasts is Jared Mayer. 